Uh, my name is Lisa Goldman. I'm the Global Voices contributor about the Israeli blogosphere. I write a weekly uh, roundup of the Israeli blogosphere. I'm also a freelance journalist and I'm based in Tel Aviv. This is Kamla Bhatt. Today we are talking to Lisa Goldman, who gave an excellent introduction of what she does. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You write about the Israeli blogosphere. Right, I do. You know, what are some of the common themes that you come across day in and day out? Yeah. Um it really varies. I have a blog also it's called On the Face and it's hosted by blogware.com. Israeli bloggers um there are two kinds of Israeli bloggers. There are those who blog in Hebrew and there are those who blog in English. I write about the ones who blog in English. Mm-hmm. And they tend to really be more interested in explaining Israel to the outside world. You know, and they do it with anecdotes and stories about their personal lives. Most of them are very, very, right, very, very personal anecdotes and stories. It's a really fascinating situation that we have every single shaded political opinion represented by these bloggers, and we have non-Jewish Israelis. Like we have a gay guy who's from North Carolina, and he blogs, <laughs> and he's got a blog called Shalom Israel, uh-huh. and he lives with his partner, who's a clerk at the Supreme to to the chief of the Supreme Court of Israel, and he's learned fluent Hebrew. Quite actually, I would say conversant Hebrew. Um, and we also have a guy who's um, from Britain and he came to Israel just as a lark when he was in 1991 fell in love with a local girl he's now a citizen he's served in the army and he talks a lot about football and his baby and drinking beers and stuff like that i blog about everything from suicide bombings to gallery openings that's what i like to say but you painted a very nice picture yesterday when we were talking offline mm. about how you have this mediterranean uh, weather there yeah. and cafes and you're out there at the beach you go to the promenade all the pictures that you were painting you know were very different from what we see on tv right and it looks like even the bloggers you said they are trying to paint a different picture of the country right why is there a need to paint this different picture you know the gap between the way israel is perceived by people who only know it through the mainstream media and those who live there and what it's actually like is enormous it's it's like two different worlds people who have come to visit tel aviv for the first time have walked around slackjawed from the complete cognitive dissonance it's a mediterranean city it's very very much oriented towards the beach because the whole city is built up and down the beach it's a very sexy city people are you know very beautiful people who like to you know that word and tell a weave don't go you see <laughs> and it's that's the way it is you know bronze people with flat bellies and tattoos and and uh, and I mean you're you know, talking about Venice beach <laughs> yeah or more you know sort of italy or france you know there's an enormous cafe life um people live their lives in cafes um it, during the summertime the whole city feels like it's on holiday because it's very hot and humid and and even at 4:00 in the morning the clubs are booming and the lounge bars we have a very sophisticated uh, lounge bar scene gallery scene modern dance um it's i i have li- i lived in manhattan for 10 years and i can tell you from from my perspective and many people have said the same thing that the cultural and nightlife in tel aviv easily compete with new york's manhattan's just on a smaller scale really yeah it's very sophisticated and part of the reason is that um during the oslo period when we all believed that the new middle east had arrived and we'd soon have open borders and peace forever and ever amen all these israelis who'd gone abroad to study art and be actors and actresses and what have you and lived in new york paris and london had come home because they didn't need to seek all these things abroad anymore it all you know um tel aviv was peaceful and wonderful and they wanted to establish they did establish this this sort of new york come paris come london come mediterranean paradise in tel aviv and i really think that tel aviv is one of the most 
fun, livable, exciting, dynamic cities in the world. Happening cities. Absolutely, absolutely. And you moved actually, you're Canadian by birth. I am. And you moved there. Yes. And you also mentioned that your great-grandmother was from Austria. Yes, Austria-Hungarian Empire. Yes. And yeah. she shared stories with about Franz Josef, mm. the last, uh, the Archduke. Yes. Who was assassinated and that's how sure. World War One began. Sure. What stories did she share with you? You know, she didn't speak too much about what we call the old country but I was very keenly aware that my great-grandmother took great pride in her blue blood, of hung- her Hungarian blue blood. Unlike the riffraff from Ukraine and, and Russia, she which is where your father's side, which is where my father's side <laughs> of the family came from, she was a German speaker, not a Yiddish speaker, and she was actually trilingual. She spoke German, Hungarian, and English. I, I once used a word in Yiddish, and she slapped me across the face and said that only uneducated Jews spoke that tone. Uh, jargon, I believe she called it. Um, she was a very elegant woman, properly dressed, silk dress, pearls all the time, very proper. And I'm sure she made very good linser tot. Oh, she was a fantastic cook, fantastic. And she taught and me for everything. And, and goulash and other things like that you don't want to know about, but they were mm-hmm. very great. And my family was not particularly is- Israel-oriented. I had a traditional Jewish education and, and just Jewish schools tend to be knee-jerk pro-Israel, but... Um, I didn't dream of, you know, of uh, the, I didn't have a Zionist dream or anything like that. When I went to Israel for the first time, it was 17, and I'd just come out of a, um, a very, very proper English girls' school, English-style mm-hmm. girls' school, where I was the only Jewish girl. Mm-hmm. And I think I was, in a way, searching for my identity and also searching for just my identity, but also freedom and You wanted different. to break free of the shackles. I really wanted to break free of the shackles, and I didn't want that need to define myself to be on my shoulders all the time. I wanted to be normal without giving up my identity as a Jew. Mm-hmm. And I really found that in Israel, which was remarkable. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't have to constantly say, right, I must go to synagogue or I must pray or I must use a certain method of speak, mode of speaking. This is it. I live here, therefore I'm Jewish. And, and I stayed for three years as a student in the 80s and then I left and I went to Columbia University and I lived in Manhattan for 10 years. Then, as I told you, I went to India for a bit. And I came to Israel. And that's where you found yourself, you said. That's say. where I found myself. It's such an American expression. Isn't it terrible? <laughs> no, it's not terrible. I, it's just, uh, I, I, I don't actually, like as I said, someone. I never went to search for my inner spiritual being or to do yoga asanas or anything. I really went to India for fun and all of a sudden I realized that India, that in India I met tons of interesting people including the daughter of a general in the army and some woman who's doing work with an NGO for uh, semi-literate women and so forth. And I realized that even though some people had difficult lives, everyone in India said they were happy mm-hmm. and everyone in New York said they were unhappy mm-hmm. and, and yet the ones in New York had so much more materially and as far as choices were concerned so I said that's it I'm not going back to live in a place where everyone's miserable but I can't obviously settle in India um, I sort of really went to Israel on a lark I, from India. I had a backpack. Uh, I wrote in somewhere that I, I came with uh, a bruised post-breakup heart. I'd just broken up with my boyfriend. Dusty backpack and a case of dysentery. And uh, <laughs> From India. <laughs> from India. Uh-huh. Don't drink the tap water. And I wouldn't drink the tap water. Oh, I was trying to be cool, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. So I ended up in Israel um, three weeks before the Intifada. That was actually considered the peak of the Oslo Spring. We believed... 98? Uh, sorry, 2000. It was okay. September 2000. We really <laughs> believed that the new Middle East had arrived and this was peace in our time and and it was just a matter of time before all the borders were open and we'd have this big vast, peaceful region of business cooperation and so forth. And indeed, there were tourists from all over the Arab world in Tel Aviv and everyone was making tons of money and, and everything had become very sophisticated and international. And I was like, this this is fantastic. I'm staying. I uh, found a job in a high-tech company. Israel was a... It, there were three high-tech companies, at the high-tech cities in the world, Bangalore, Tel Aviv and Silicon Valley. Those were the mm-hmm, three. Mm-hmm. So I found a high-tech job, uh, business, marketing and stayed. Three weeks after I arrived, the Intifada erupted. 
And I didn't leave because it takes it took a while before I felt the exigencies of the situation. And I wrote Can about that. Can you just that. explain Intifada means the uprising? Yes, um, the Oslo agreement, the Oslo peace process ended. What happened was that there were a series of events that um, resulted in riots in the West Bank and exchanges of fire between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian um, armed men were very severe. The peace process was over and the borders were back up and the dream was gone like that, literally overnight. Mm-hmm. Nobody could believe it. As I wrote on my blog, it was like seeing the Berlin Wall rebuilt or apartheid reinstated in South Africa. We just really thought that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was over. We couldn't believe it was happening. We really thought the peace process was a done deal, that it was a certainty. To see it all blow up in our faces was a complete and utter shock, and I think we stayed in shock for about two or three years. And I think we all still have post-traumatic stress disorder, which is why I think most Israelis don't blog about politics in Hebrew. They just don't. They're sick of politics. They're exhausted by politics. They blog about their kids. They blog about tech things. They blog about their work, their family, they blog about the people they're having sex with, but they do not blog about politics. And people don't talk politics in Israel anymore either. They don't? No. Conversations in cafes are about philosophy, about uh, dance, art, music, whatever, anything but politics. And it's not a deliberate attempt to avoid politics. It's a total lack of interest. You also mentioned an interesting um, trend in Israel. You said mm-hmm. that there are quite a few Indians yes. arriving in Israel. Yes. And that there are two types, the techies mm-hmm. and then the diamond uh, right. merchants. Yes. Tell me a little bit about this, even though this is not a show about India. No, but it's a fascinating <laughs> phenomenon. Because t- this is global voices. Exactly, and this is a global story. Uh-huh. And it's one of those bizarre, there are so many, but there's one of those bizarre cultural anomalies that we have in Israel where, as you know, one of the biggest diamond exchanges in the world is located in Tel Aviv. Right. And um, many of these diamond merchants Uh, it's a huge complex and they deal a lot with Indian diamond merchants and over the past five or six years India has rapidly ascended to a very very important place in the diamond business because the sellers are the Jewish people and the cutters are in India Indians we actually had cutters a very in Surat no we had a fantastic cutting business in Israel but the problem is that you know we're paying them $4,000 a month and in India the average cutter gets paid $250 a month and they do just as good a job so it's one twentieth the price Right, exactly. So um, quite a few Indian diamond merchants realized that they were flying back and forth to Tel Aviv so frequently they might as well just relocate the whole family. They've moved into the very posh northern suburbs of Tel What Aviv. What is it called? Um, Herzliya Pituach and mm-hmm. Savion. These are places where they have very elegant homes with uh, two or three floors and five or six bedrooms and they bring their own servants from India and we've, had, we've already had our own abused maid story that <laughs> broke out in the newspapers and, uh, and they play cricket in the park on Fridays in their whites just as they would in Bombay or in Delhi or in Calcutta or in London or in London and uh, they really have their own clique we don't notice them too much because the northern suburbs are very much a, a sort of um, metaphorically speaking a gated community and mm-hmm. and there are plenty of, they have their own little restaurants and their own and there's a whole area on the on the deck on the um, the place where the yachts are what do you call that in English I've lost Key. so they have all their own they have very you know posh cafes and restaurants and shops and boutiques and they just cluster there mm-hmm. they don't really come into my area of Tel Aviv too much. I see them once in a while and they're terribly elegant and they speak very proper English and their children always say yes please and it's lovely. Now the techies are quite different. Now whereas the wives of the diamond merchants will either wear terribly expensive western clothes or very elegant saris the wives of the di- of the techies wear salvar kameez and they they go shopping in the outdoor market to save money um, because that's where the cheap things are and they've managed to learn a bit of Hebrew and their husbands are computer programmers and things like that and they come over to work for Israeli companies that have interest or branches in India and um, 
I think they make up between a thousand and two thousand dollars a month, and they they've got their apartments and their lives, and their kids go to local schools. And you see them walking along on Saturdays and Fridays, you know, which is Friday, Saturday is the weekend in Israel. Shabbat. Shabbat, you know. And I told you that story about seeing the Harry, the Israeli Harry Krishnas chanting in Hebrew on <laughs> that the was, promenade. Yes, that's a hoot. Can, I, it, can, it, was can a you tell the story again? Story. Because it's, it's Hari Rama singing, I mean, chanting in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bad. I think Israel ha- um, sends the most tourists to India every year out of any country. Right. And, and they come back very influenced. Some of them come under the influence of these cults. I mean, most of them just come back with a nose pierce and a tattoo and some baggy clothes. And a, <laughs> But some of them do go a little bit with the religious cult. And this, so they, we have an Israeli Hare Krishna movement. One hot Saturday afternoon, I was walking on the beach and um, there was a group of Hare Krishna, Israeli Hare Krishna, who were dancing and, and chiming with the symbol and they were playing the harmonium and they were and they were chanting Hare Krishna in their Hebrew versions and everyone was just passing by and giving these sort of amused or bemused glances and all of a sudden I saw this large Indian family wife in Salvar Kamiz and husband wearing the nylon shirt and the four or five children and wearing and they they stopped and they just looked and they didn't look shocked or amazed they just looked sort of bemused they were eating um, sunflower seeds out of uh-huh. a bag and they were splitting the shells with their teeth and just standing there and watching these Israelis dance Hare Krishna on the beach in front of them. <laughs> and I thought it was a great story. So I think I think folks out there know that the next blog is going to be about the Indian community in Israel. In, in Israel and you're going to talk about the Hare Krishnas. I will definitely blog about that. I think it's too good to miss. You need to have some pictures. Yeah, I do. Um, and I've there's a Flickr link on my account and people can see it. I'll put more pictures up. Please. Well. So we're going to sh- we're going to see Indians in Israel. In Israel. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. It was a pleasure.